We have engaged upon a study of First Timothy recently, and we have been confining our study of First Timothy to Sunday nights, but I hate not to finish a book that I have begun, and so I have 12 more sermons to preach at White Oak, the Lord willing, if all uh, goes according to schedule. I would like to finish the book of First Timothy, so... With your indulgence, we will uh, finish First Timothy, the Lord willing, by April 24, 12 more after tonight. And so I'd like to finish First Timothy. It's a great study, and it, expository preaching is one of my favorite kinds of preaching. And so I can't think of a better way to finish up my work here and local work with a series of expository lessons as we finish up, Lord willing, First Timothy. We're ready for chapter 2 tonight. Verse 8, beginning, where Paul writes, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner, also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And then Paul says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. It is those verses from verse 8 through verse 15 of chapter 2 that I'd like for us to highlight tonight in a reasonable amount of time and get the salient points from Paul's admonition here. And it is an admonition. Although many translations render verse 8, I desire, the word in the original, though it can mean that, more often has a legislative connotation to it. And so from an apostle, this is not a, a wish that they had an option to either uh, carry out or not carry out. No, this was, this, was a poly, uh, this was an apostle's legislation. This was authoritative. I will. I want. This is a command in effect, not simply a wish. And the therefore takes us back to the previous material in the verses that have just preceded it. And verse 7, when he writes, For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And so then he says, Therefore, as an apostle, with the authority of Christ, I want, I will, I desire, as it is often translated. In other words, this is not optional. This is the will of God, that the men pray everywhere. Now, the men... Pray everywhere. We are in the context here, as Paul writes, of a worship setting. We are dealing with a setting that applies primarily to a public worship. And of course, many of the principles that are set forth here would also apply beyond and outside the corporate assembly, the worship. But it is vitally important, especially in what, in light of what is happening in the religious world today, and yes, tragically, even in the church, where women are being elevated to authoritative roles, leading prayer in mixed assemblies, serving at the Lord's table, 
even uh, becoming women preachers, and yes, that has happened and is happening even in the Lord's church in places, it is vitally important that we understand that what we are studying here tonight in relation to the woman's role in the worship assembly and the man's role, by contrast, is not culture. It is command. And yet what is, quite, what is off, uh, offered quite regularly today to try to offset the very clear teaching of the Apostle Paul here is that, well, but this is a different time. We're in a different time, and Paul was regulating things in a cultural setting that he found himself in. That is simply false to the core. And it is clear from all of the verses that we will be looking at tonight that Paul's commands here had nothing to do with the culture of his time and that what he legislates here is for all time to come in the Lord's church, not only in a specific location like Ephesus where Timothy was left and dealing with some issues there, but everywhere throughout the brotherhood, this legislation was binding and is still binding today. And so he says, I desire, I will, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. We briefly alluded to this in a previous lesson and said by way of preview, we would talk more about it when we got here. The word men there is the word that means the male species, the male of the species, and only the male. And in the original language of the New Testament, there is the word that means humankind. There is the word that means the male of the species. And so if Paul had intended for women to be included in those who are permitted to pray publicly, lead prayer that is, then he would have used the word anthropos. He would have used the word that refers to mankind, meaning men and women. He did not use that word. He used the word aner, which means and can only mean the male of the species. He made it abundantly clear that this is a reference to the male of the species. But notice something. Is he saying that only men then, verse 8, can pray in a public assembly and that women are prohibited from praying? Well, of course not. Women are to pray just like men are to pray. So when Paul says, I will that men pray everywhere, the male of the species, what is the obvious context? That men are the ones who lead in prayer. It has to mean that. Because women are to pray in the assembly, just not to lead in prayer. They are not to take a public lead. And so it is obviously obvious when he says, I will that men pray everywhere, that we can add this with doing, without doing any violence whatsoever to the text. I will, therefore, that the men lead prayer in the public assembly everywhere, not just in one congregation, but everywhere, everywhere. And for all time to come. And prayer, of course, is mentioned specifically. But obviously, it would represent any act of public worship in which the men are to obviously take the lead. And the women are prohibited from doing so. And so here it is clear that the men are to lead in prayer publicly and to take the lead in the public assembly, in the worship of the church. Now then he says, further describing those men and the kind of men that are lead to lead in prayer, he says, lifting up holy hands. That is a comment 
that legislates the kind of men who are to be selected to lead in prayer. They need to be men in whom we have confidence as faithful Christian men who can lead the congregation in prayer without the congregation being distracted by the fact that someone's up here or in any congregation leading prayer whose life does not comport with what he professes to be. Obviously, their hands are to be holy. Literally, holy hands? Is that what he's saying? No. It is a figure of speech. The idea of lifting up holy hands is an obvious allusion to one of the postures in prayer that we can read about in the Bible. In fact, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 22, you see an example of this. Under the Old Testament especially, there were those who, as a part of their prayers, would extend their arms heavenward, generally with the palms being open so as to indicate their willingness to receive from God's hand into their hand what they were praying for. In 1 Kings 8.22, at the dedication of Solomon's temple, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, and then he begins and goes through his prayer. And so on that occasion, Solomon lifted his hands, spread out his hands toward heaven, no doubt with his palms up as was characteristic, and prayed the prayer. Now, is that the only posture in prayer that we ever read about in Scripture? Of course not. There are several postures in prayer. None is legislated as the means by which we are to pray. I can remember, and perhaps some of you can, In fact, I remember Brother Willie Lemons who held the gospel meeting here, the tent meeting that led to the start of the White Oak Congregation when he preached in our home congregation on two different uh, time periods for several years. uh, I would always remember Brother W.J. Lemons when he was up here waiting to preach and prayer was offered or if he happened to be down on the front row, he got down on his knee. I always remember that about Brother Lemons. Was that some sort of ostentatious show that he was putting on? Well, of course not. He just felt as though he wanted to express his deep humility toward God in prayer and his reverence toward God by kneeling. That's one of the postures. He could have lain face down. And that would have been an acceptable posture because prostrating oneself upon the ground is also one of those postures in prayer. Also, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said on one occasion, when you stand praying, when you stand praying. So the Lord himself endorsed standing as an acceptable posture in prayer. My point is there is no posture, no specific posture in prayer that is legislated. Well, why then have some today, and yes, even in the church, started lifting hands in the assembly? That along with hand clapping are two things that we are seeing at times in the Lord's church. Clapping at baptisms and singing happy birthday. I heard of that happening just recently uh, where someone was baptized and though they borrowed another congregation's baptistry because they didn't have a baptistry available, came to this uh, good uh, sound congregation and they graciously, the church let them use their baptistry And when the baptism was concluded, they clapped and began to sing happy birthday. And to the elders of that congregation's credit, they said, that will not happen here again. 
That will not happen here again. And then we see the lifting up of hands as though that is some sort of more reverent or whatever uh, posture. It, it is not. In fact, it can be distracting. Beyond that, beyond that, generally when you see someone lifting hands today, they not only lift their hands, but they begin to sway. And they don't necessarily have palms up. Generally, it's, I guess, palms out. I remember when we did uh, GBN at the Ryman, the Tabernacle Sermons today at the Ryman Auditorium. And I remember sitting up on the stage one night and looking out as the, uh, as the singing was taking place. I guess it was during the singing, as I recall. And I saw one lady who was visiting, I guess. I don't know if she was a member of the church anywhere or not. But that's exactly what she was doing. She was simply waving her hands and swaying. Well, again, there's nothing about waving of hands even in the lifting up of hands in the prayer posture that we read about in the New Testament. So they're, they're unauthorized in doing it the way they do it anyway. Also, all we see about lifting up of hands in the Scripture was during what? Prayer. And when do they do it usually today? During the singing, most of the time. Where's the authorization for that? And so it is obviously something that is, is lifted out of its context and misapplied totally and incorporated into the worship of some today. Lifting up holy hands is a figure of speech which says what? Simply the men who lead the prayer need to be holy men. In other words, they need to be the right kind of men in whom we have confidence and can follow as they lead us in prayer. They are not to be the kind of men who are uh, wrath, wrath, filled with wrath. They're not to be uh, contentious. They're not to be doubters. You see, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So public prayer is obviously under consideration here, and it represents every act of worship that takes place in a public way, and the men are to be the ones who are to lead in those activities. And yet they are to be men with holy hands, not literal holy hands, but holy people. It's like Paul's uh, uh, legislation about the holy kiss. When he said, salute one, the, one another to the Roman Christians, he said, salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you, Romans sixteen sixteen. He was not legislating that you kiss each other. He was not saying that that's what you must do he was saying, though, that was the custom of the day, and he was regulating an existing custom and saying, if you do kiss someone, make sure it's a holy kiss. Make sure it's the right kind of kiss. The same idea here, when praying, make sure that men who lead those prayers are men who are faithful men of God. Now he turns his attention in verse 9 to the women. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. The word adorn there is the word from which we get our word, no doubt, cosmetics, cameo, cosmetics. In other words, order, cosmos. The universe is the cosmos. It's the same kind of idea. The idea of an orderliness, of, of, a, uh, of an adorning that is modest. And the word modest is the adjective form of the same word adorn, that's in the verb form, and the idea here is that women 
adorn themselves in a way that is not ostentatious, that does not leave the wrong impression, that does not provide a, a distraction uh, and make them look as though they are flaunting their uh, jewelry, their clothing, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, apparel, that's the only time in the New Testament where the word translated apparel is used. And it is literally letting down of the garment. In other words, a garment that is let down, a garment that is a proper propriety, moderation. And when he says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, he is not legislating that you cannot wear jewelry as a woman. He's not legislating that you cannot uh, wear makeup. He is just saying that anything that is to the extreme, obviously, and that is designed to call undue attention to itself is not appropriate for women who profess godliness. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be that the clothing is too uh, scanty uh, or too little of it, but it can be uh, ostentatious as well. It's obvious if we look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 that not all uh, apparel of any kind is being prohibited here. In uh, 1 Peter 3 and uh, verse 3, Peter wrote, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, in the New King James, if you have the New King James, perhaps other translations you have, when he says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, the word merely is in italics which means it's not in the original, but it is supplied in order to gain the sense of the passage more fully. And when you come to the word fine, putting on fine apparel, the word fine is also in italics, which means it's not in the original, but it's placed there to, uh, to add, uh, to give the sense of the passage more fully. Otherwise, otherwise what you have is do not let your adornment be outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on apparel, putting on apparel. So if you take that literally without the word fine being supplied to sh clearly show what the, the apostle had in mind, then women would be prohibited from doing that which would be uh, rather uh, disturbing, to say the least. Couldn't even put on clothes if you're going to say not putting on apparel. It's obvious, common sense tells you clearly that he is saying, don't let the adornment be merely outward. Don't let it be primarily outward. Don't let it be something that calls undue attention to itself. Is he saying you can't arrange your hair? I hope not, because I'm sure that all the women here and, and us men too, those that have any left at all, I arrange my hair pretty much every day, uh, the one or two uh, that I have left. And uh, so arranging the hair is obviously... Um, uh, not prohibited. Is he saying you can never wear anything that's made of gold? No. It's clear as to what the apostle's injunction is, Peter and Paul here. And so, modest apparel with propriety and moderation, but which is proper, look at verse 10, which is proper for women, what? Professing godliness with good works. That's the key. Women professing godliness and letting their good works be the primary means by which they show themselves to 
the world. Incidentally, one could go to the opposite extreme of the admonition here and uh, call more attention to oneself than by wearing a certain amount of jewelry or a certain amount of makeup or whatever. And there are those who take it so seriously they do go to, uh, to another extreme, an unnecessary extreme, because there is uh, clearly a balanced view from both Paul and Peter in the two passages that we have looked at that do not prohibit the wearing of jewelry or the wearing of, uh, of clothing that is appropriate or uh, the use of, of makeup. And so in verse 11, then he turns to something about which there is a great deal of uh, controversy and uh, tragic misunderstanding, but there shouldn't be. Verse 11, he says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now, silence... Uh, is a translation of a word here in the original that may suggest to us something because of our English usage of it that Paul never intended to suggest. A better rendering would be, let the woman learn in quietness. Quietness. In other words, submission, but not absolute silence. The scriptures do not prohibit a woman in the assembly in the worship of the church today from singing. Obviously, women are to sing. They are not out of submission when they engage in singing. And yet, if the word silence here, and there is another word in the Greek that means absolute silence, this is not it. This word simply means quietness, subdued, under submission but not absolute silence. So the admonition is, let a woman learn in quietness with all submission. And then verse 12, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Again, the word translated silence is the same word as in verse 11, and it means quietness or submission, but not absolute silence but simply submission. When he says, I do not permit a woman to teach, we don't stop there. We don't put a period there because women are to teach. In fact, uh, Titus, Paul's uh, letter to Titus made it abundantly clear that women are to teach. Listen to Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. The older women likewise, that they be reverent behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Paul, the very same writer, to Titus says, the women are to teach, but they are limited in terms of the role and the context in which they can do that teaching. The word for teach here quite often means to deliver a didactic discourse. In other words, it's the idea of delivering a a lesson. And the admonition here is, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have what? Authority over a man. What's he saying? I do not permit a woman to teach over the man. I do not permit her to teach in any way that would be construed as being over the man in a Christian assembly of mixed men and women, or to have authority over the man. 
So he is not limiting his prohibition to simply teaching over the man. He's saying, I don't permit her to teach over a man or to any, in any other way exercise authority over a man. And so it is abundantly clear what Paul prohibits. And yet in the church today, as we said earlier, in many places, tragically, you have that very thing occurring. And how is it excused? Generally in the way that I mentioned a few moments ago, by saying, well, this was a cultural prohibition. This was culture, not command. And it was for a limited time, and it certainly has no application to us today. Well, let's see about that. If you look at verse 13 and verse 14, you have abundant evidence that this could not be cultural. Why? because he gives the basis for the limitation on women's role in verses 13 and 14, and neither reason that he gives has anything to do with the culture of that time. Verse 13, he says, here's the reason, one reason, why I am issuing this prohibition, because Adam was formed first and then Eve. He takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the creation order, and he says to us by inspiration, there was a creation order, and God created man first and then woman, and he did that not by accident. And Adam was formed first, therefore he is to be the head of the woman. And woman was taken from Adam's side, and from a rib taken from Adam's side, God made a helper comparable to him, Genesis 2 reminds us, comparable to him. Nothing inferior at all about a woman versus the man. It's not an inferiority matter, it's a matter of assignment of the role of men to be the heads of their families and women to be in loving submission to them. And that is not an unenviable position as we have talked about before. In fact, when you read the New Testament, you find that woman's admonition from Paul, for example, in the Ephesian letter to be in submission puts woman on a pedestal, elevates her to a position that any woman in her right mind would want to be elevated to if she's thinking as she should. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. If husbands take seriously that charge, any woman married to a man like that is going to be a princess. <laughs> she is going to be on a pedestal. Will she be in loving submission? If she's thinking straight, she will indeed. But she will in no way resent that because it is a mutually beneficial relationship as it is played out as God intended for it to be. And so Adam was first formed and then Eve. That's reason number one for the prohibition of verses 11 and 12. Has anything changed about Adam being created first before Eve? Well, of course not. Therefore, his basis for issuing the prohibition is an eternal basis, not a cultural basis. But the second reason is given in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. She was completely taken in by the serpent. 
Adam was not. He ate because of his love and respect for his wife, and he ate that fruit. She was completely deceived. And because of that deception and her susceptibility to that deception, God said the man is going to be the head of the woman. Does that mean that, again, women are inferior? No, but they are different. And I've seen reports, uh, I don't know how much validity is attached to it, but how the brains of men and women are wired differently. And the emotions and the various characteristics of women versus men are indeed different. And Eve was obviously susceptible and Satan approached her. Why did he approach her and not Adam initially? And so God said, through the inspired apostle Paul, since the woman was deceived and led her husband into transgression, then indeed that relationship is always going to be a relationship of the woman being subject to the man. But nevertheless, last verse at which we look tonight, nevertheless she will be saved in childbearing. It's not a hopeless situation. She's not, she is not uh, relegated to a position where no woman can ever be saved, obviously not. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, there have been various opinions of what saved in childbearing refers to. One is that this is a reference to the virgin birth of Christ, that ultimately it will be a woman, Mary, who would bring into this world the Savior of the world. That's one position. The position I believe to be the case, however, is that this again is simply a synecdoche or a figure of speech where the part is put for the whole and the childbearing is a word that is used to represent her role, God-given role, as a woman, as a wife, as a mother, as one who takes seriously her responsibility in the home, to be a keeper at home, meaning she has to stay at home? No. But her primary responsibility is to be the keeper at home and to guide that household within the God-given sphere that God has placed her. And if she will do that, if she will keep that wonderful and awesome responsibility in mind and carry it out faithfully in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, then she will be saved. In other words, it's simply saying man has his role, woman has hers, and as long as woman does not usurp that role and does not forget the awesome responsibility that she has and the wonderful privilege she has to guide the home as God wants her to guide that home, then indeed she is going to be pleasing to God. And that's the sad thing about the society in which we live today is that being a keeper at home, that is giving the proper emphasis to your domestic responsibilities as a woman, whether you work outside the home or not. I'm not saying a woman cannot work outside the home. But even if she does, she, needs to not, she does not need to work outside the home to the neglect of her wifely, motherly, etc. responsibilities in that home. She has to balance that role. 
And women are smart. They can do that. They can balance that role. But society today tells us, no, that is putting women down. To say that she needs to give primary emphasis to being a keeper at home is to basically deny her what she deserves in this society. And it is, it is looked down upon. That's sad indeed. And America is paying a price for that attitude, really, in terms of its effect upon women in our society, especially many younger women. But I believe the case to be that the childbearing simply is a word that represents the responsibilities, the wonderful privileges that she is charged with carrying out as a keeper at home, as the guider, the one who guides that household within her God-given sphere. And how many times have you heard expressions like the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? People who understand and appreciate the power of women and their influence in the home will never, never downgrade or denigrate the role of women as God gave that role to them. Tonight as we close, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing Him to be the Christ, and being buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins, we plead with you to do that. If you need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to come now as we stand to sing to encourage you.